you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. This morning we will be finishing this very long chapter of John's Gospel. You may recall that when we started this journey through the Gospel of John, I told you that broadly speaking, John is divided into two parts. The first half of John is often called the Book of Signs, chapters 1 through 12, in which Jesus gives signs that he is the Messiah. Chapters 13 to the conclusion of the book are often called the Book of Glory, because it is in that section that our Lord goes through Passion Week, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, as we conclude chapter 8 here this morning, you will know that we have not yet reached 40 sermons in John, although we're close. And that should tell you that we have a ways yet to go. And so just to get you thinking about it a bit, at the crux of 12 and 13, we'll take a short break and have a topical series in between those. And I anticipate that to be happening about September. So, And then after that break, we'll come back into the Gospel of John. Uh, I trust that the Lord has been blessing you with this Gospel. It's very unique in the way in which it presents us the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing that's been very encouraging to me as your pastor, and I hope it has encouraged you, is that the Gospel of John encourages me to share my faith. It encourages me to tell others about who Jesus is, even in small ways, because that's what John is doing for us. After all, that's the theme of this book, that we might know Jesus, and that by knowing Him, we would have eternal life. So our text this morning is John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would see him as the great I am. That we would know that he is our savior. He is our hope. And that in knowing that, we would worship you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Often we think that the reason people do not come to Jesus is because they're confused or because they don't know what Jesus says. But the Gospel of John shows us over and over again Jesus making clear, bold statements about who he is. Jesus challenged the people of his day and Jesus challenges us now. At the end of this chapter 8, we have one of Jesus' plainest and boldest statements. He does not leave us an option to ignore him. There is no one like Jesus. No one has the words of Jesus. No one gives hope like Jesus. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, how will you respond to Jesus? Jesus makes three claims in our text this morning. First, Jesus claims to have eternal life. He claims to be the one who possesses and can give eternal life. Then secondly, Jesus claims to know the Father. Jesus claims to have a special relationship with God the Father. And then thirdly, and most boldly, Jesus claims to be God. Jesus claims to have eternal life. He claims to know the Father. And he claims to be God. Well, let's look at our text here, beginning with Jesus' claims to have eternal life. Jesus has been, as we have been studying in the temple, teaching others. He's at the Feast of Booths, that most popular of feasts, and he has been calling all of the crowds to come to him. During the Feast of Booths, Jerusalem would swell with people coming in from the countryside. And Jesus told them to come to him for living water. And then he put it a different way. He said that they would come to him and that By the truth, he would set them free. What Jesus has been doing here is challenging the Jews on their assumptions that they knew God and that they were therefore children of Abraham. But what is interesting is the more that Jesus teaches, the more hostile the Jewish leaders become. The clearer he explains who he is, and what he does, the more they want to kill him. Now you may recall this, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, occur throughout this Gospel of John. They actually are in the very first chapter. You may recall that we meet them first in the presence of John the Baptist. 
But in the first few chapters, they're kind of observers, onlookers. They don't know what to make of Jesus. They're not sure about Jesus. And Jesus has not gone out and explicitly taught in the temple and in the synagogues. But then Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he heals a man who has been lame for 38 years. And he begins to publicly teach in Jerusalem. And there in chapter 5 is first where we read that the Pharisees want to kill him. And if you'll recall, the reason they say they want to kill him is not just because he broke their rules of the Sabbath. It's explicitly said they wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. And so again in chapter 7 we read that Jesus is not going throughout Judea and the surrounding area because the leaders are out to kill him. And then there are more threats here in this chapter. And this chapter actually concludes with an attempt to kill him, an actual attempt to stone him. There is an increase in the hostility of those who hear Jesus' teaching. So this section begins in verse 48 with an immediate hostile response. The Pharisees turn to Jesus and they begin to make accusations against him. They call him a Samaritan and they say he has a demon. Now, now what does this mean? We might look at this beginning and see name-calling. You know, in many families, there are occasionally instances in which siblings will call each other names. Maybe that's happened in your family, where they'll make up a pet name or a name that is especially insulting or hurtful, and they'll throw this back and forth at each other. And on some level, we laugh a little bit, but we say, you shouldn't do that, that's not right. And then we move past it. But that's not what's happening here. This isn't name-calling. They're being very specific about what they're doing. They call Jesus a Samaritan. And this is the only place in the gospel where Jesus is, is called here a Samaritan. Now, there's two aspects to this. You may remember when we studied the woman at the well in John 4, that Samaria was populated by a group of people who had very different religious views than the Jews. The Jews regarded them as heretics. They only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired. They didn't believe in various doctrines that the Jews believed in. And they were considered apostate, heretics. So on some level here, what the Pharisees are doing is telling Jesus, when you keep making these statements about having eternal life, about having living water, about the truth setting you free, you're just a crackpot theologian. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't been trained. But there's also a bit more of an edge here. You see, to call someone in polite Jewish circles a Samaritan was also a racial slur. It's a racial slur on the level of which I cannot give you a modern example from the pulpit. You see... The Pharisees have gotten to the point where they are so angry, they are so blinded by anger, they are so irrational that their words come out in pure hate and vitriol. There's nothing to it. They know Jesus isn't from Samaria, and yet they use this slur 
to tar him, to make him be less than human. Now, briefly, this is an example of what people do today when they're blinded by anger and when they're irrational. They seek to dehumanize other people by using such slurs, by using such languages. One of the things I want to encourage you is that if you've ever felt demeaned by others, slurred by others, denigrated by others, then you see here you're in good company. The Savior received the same treatment. Well, they also call him demon-possessed. Now, I don't think that they mean here what we think immediately when we think about being demon-possessed. Jesus' head is not spinning around. He's not uh, screaming or vomiting blood or, or doing things that you might have seen in a movie or uh, in some sort of television show. No, but those sorts of things that describe a demon-possessed person also describe crazy people. And so you see the connection there. So what they're saying is to Jesus, you are crazy. We shouldn't listen to you. No one else should listen to you. Your claims are bogus. You are a crazy man. Or even worse than that, you are wicked and intentionally deceiving other people. Now, this is typical in the gospel accounts. We see this sort of thing happening over and over again. Whenever Jesus threatens the power of the Jewish leaders or he makes demands about what it means to follow the Lord, they attack him. And again, this is no different today. Because what people want from Jesus is a mild, meek Jesus that's a good teacher and who shares fortune cookie kind of wisdom. Things that are benign, can be taken or left. I mean, how many of you have changed your life after reading a fortune out of a fortune cookie? Right? That's what people want. They want a Jesus who doesn't tell them what to do. A Jesus who doesn't make judgments. And they're happy to have Jesus stand on the sideline of their life. But as soon as Jesus makes a claim on their lives, on their actions, or their beliefs, they attack. That's why we see so much hostility to Christianity in our world as opposed to other religions. People do not want to be held accountable. It's also, I think, a reason why so many leave the church as they come into adulthood. You see, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's an authority problem. We don't want to be bound by God's law. We don't want to be told what we must believe. We don't want to be told who we are as sinners. And so we go away from Jesus. So Jesus answers their charges by refuting them. He tells them, I'm not a heretic. I'm not a crazy man. I'm not a member of a cult. I honor my father. That's what he says in verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And Jesus does something here that he often does. He appeals to the message that he has as the one who is sent by the Father. That's what he means by, I honor the Father. The Father has given me his word, I have kept his word, and I have spoken his word. I must speak his word. 
and he turns to the Pharisees and says, you dishonor me. You dishonor me because you do not hear the Father. That's what's at stake here. You dishonor me not by calling me a Samaritan, not by saying I have a demon, but because you do not hear the word of God. Now the one thing that we must always remember about Jesus is that he never seeks his own glory. Jesus is indeed God, but he never seeks glory for himself. What gospel account do you have of Jesus walking around saying, you know how many sick people I healed this week? Do you know how many things I've done to benefit and bless people? Guess who created the world? This guy. Guess who sustains the world? Yeah, me again. That, that sounds absolutely ridiculous because it is because we never see Jesus doing that. Ever. He never brings attention to himself he never wants to glorify himself. Jesus brings the message of the Father. That is his job, his task as the Redeemer. And that message is a message of eternal life. So do you see the connection here? That Jesus has eternal life and that eternal life is found in the message the Father has given him to bring. So what Jesus says here in verse 51 is, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now we've seen this before. Truly, truly. In the Greek, amen, amen. Yes, yes. Or we might just say, listen up. 25 times in the scriptures, Jesus uses this attention-grabbing initial phrase. All 25 times, interestingly enough, are found in the Gospel of John. And so when Jesus says, truly, truly, you'd better pause, think hard, and listen to what he says. And he says here, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What Jesus is telling us is, whoever keeps his word, that is the word that the Father has given to him, will never die will forever be exempt, we might say, from death. The, the translation actually hides the original language a little bit because the word never here put positively could be forever and ever they will not. You see, what Jesus is doing here is reminding us that his word is life because his word is the Father's word. And you must hear this word in order to have life. Jesus has given us the opposite view earlier in this chapter in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now this is a bold claim. What it means is, no matter how often you work out, no matter how good your diet is, no matter what you do, no matter how kind you are to others, no matter where you live, what the climate is, you will die. The only way to avoid death is to keep Jesus' word. Not Confucius' word. Not Muhammad's word. No one else's word. Only Jesus' word has eternal life. That is a bold, exclusive claim. But the Jews want to avoid this claim. 
they immediately shift this into a discussion about the physical, about the material. They turn to Jesus and they say, now we know you have a demon. Now we know you're crazy. Because after all, Abraham died and the prophets died. How can you say this? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than Abraham? That's impossible. And so what they do here is they shift Jesus' word about eternal life into just meaning physical life. And they think they have the case that wins because everyone, including Abraham, has died. We see this today, don't we? People are constantly trying to shift Jesus' teachings to the material. They, they want to talk about social impacts of Jesus' teaching or moral impacts in our lives about Jesus' teaching. They want to move away from the eternal. They don't want Jesus' claim. They want to twist it into something else. Well, the second claim that Jesus makes is to know the Father. And this claim is, relink, is linked to his relationship with the Father. He makes it clear that he's not like any other Messiah figure. He is different from all the others. If I glorify myself, verse 54, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Now, what other Messiah figures had done is they would come and do the exact opposite of Jesus. They would come and they would glorify themselves. The way they became Messiah figures is they would walk around telling people how great they were. All the things they'd done, all the followers they had, all the learning they had possessed. And that's what they would do. And then what they would do is go up to others and they would try to please them by saying great things about other people. So they not only wanted to glorify themselves, they glorified others. Because there's no better way to get a list of followers than to compliment them. Right? You say how great they are. If you want followers, you say, you know what? You are just the smartest group of people I have ever seen. Well, and of course you're the smartest group of people I've ever seen because you're listening to me. I mean, that, that's wonderful, isn't it? And it makes this kind of bond. That's what other Messiah figures did. But Jesus isn't interested in compliments. He's not interested in compliments for himself or for others. What matters to Jesus is what the Father thinks. He says his glory comes from the Father. And he tells these Jewish leaders that they think they have a relationship with the Father. But in reality, they don't know him. Because the whole mission of Jesus, the whole work of Jesus, is to serve the will of the Father. Now, this is a very important distinction. Jesus doesn't want glory. He wants to serve the Father. And this is a guide for us. Because so often we are drawn by fame and by praise. Aren't we? We want to be around other people who think we're great. Who like us. Who lavish praise on us. Who tell us how good we are at things. But to follow Jesus, we must be like Jesus. We are to only seek to praise and to please the Lord. Jesus then gets to the crux of the matter. He says in verse 55, But you have not known him, 
I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus says, I know the Father, and that is evident because I keep the Father's word. The evidence of my relationship with the Father is found in my actions. The clear implication here is that it is the substance that matters, not talk. The Pharisees were full of talk. Talk about how much they knew. Talk about how they knew God. Talk about how good they were. Talk about how God had favored them. That's what's been going on this whole chapter. But Jesus calls them to account. He says, are you doing the will of God? Is your life an evidence of what your claim is? To know God the Father means we must keep his word. And, and there's a reciprocal relationship here. Because we must know the Father in order to keep his word. How do you know what to do if you don't know the one who's giving you the commands? How else can you follow his commands? Have you ever had the instance of being supremely frustrated when someone comes up to you and says, you did not do that how I wanted it done. You didn't clean that how you were supposed to clean it. You didn't fix that the way you were supposed to fix it. And your response is, no one told me what to do. Right? The only way you know what to do is if you know the one who's giving the command. We can only know what God wants by knowing him. And that is always the order. We know God, and then we hear his word, and we keep it. We seek to know God in his word. Well, Jesus then makes a startling statement in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is telling us that he's the fulfillment of the Father's purpose. It's not just that he knows about the Father. He is fulfilling the Father's purpose and plan. What does he mean when he says this? Well, some say it's Abraham looking down from heaven and seeing Jesus and rejoicing. But that can't be. And you don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure that out. You just need to know basic English grammar. Because the verbs in verse 56 are past tense verbs. Abraham rejoiced. He saw. So it's not talking about what's happening here and now. What does it mean then? I think it means that God came to Abraham and set him apart. And he gave Abraham as a blessing to all of the nations. He made a covenant with Abraham. He revealed his covenant purpose to be a blessing to the nations through Abraham and his seed. And Abraham understood the nature of grace. That God, by his grace, had called Abraham out and was going to, through Abraham, by his grace, be a blessing, not just to Abraham, not just to his children, but to all of the nations of the earth. That was the whole point of the incident with Isaac being offered up. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and you ever wonder why Abraham would do that? No good parent would possibly consider this. Is Abraham gone a little bit crazy? But when you dig down in and you go to the book of Hebrews, you understand that Abraham believed 
that God would raise Isaac from the dead in order to keep his promise. You see, God had promised Abraham that it was through Isaac that his seed would bless the world. So it's not that Isaac would be sacrificed and there would be a replacement. It had to be Isaac, and God had to keep his promise. And Abraham said, it is more likely, it is likely that God will turn back the bonds of death than break his promise. I'm going to trust God to keep his promise. Abraham knew that God would provide a sacrifice. As Isaac says, I see the wood and I see the fire. But where is the sacrifice, Father? And what is Abraham's response? God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now that's one of those verses that you really want to dig into, right? Because it's not just God will provide. It's God will provide himself. Abraham being prophetic, perhaps without even knowing it, that God would himself be the sacrifice, that Jesus is that sacrifice. And it couldn't be clearer here because Jesus says that Abraham did not rejoice in the Messiah's day. He says he rejoiced in my day, in Jesus' day. Abraham saw and now testifies through Christ that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan of redemption. Well, that takes us then to the third claim that Jesus has. Jesus not only claims to have eternal life, he not only claims to know the Father, above and beyond that, he claims to be God. Now you see that the Pharisees ask a question that shows more than they know. This is interesting. We see this also throughout the Gospel of John. The Pharisees keep asking these questions, and we know the answer, and we wonder why they don't get it. Like they ask, what, are you greater than Abraham? Yes. Are you greater than the prophets? Yes. Are you greater than Moses? Yes. And here they ask, who do you make yourself out to be? In verse 53. Who do you think you are? This is the most important question that any of us can ever answer. It's a question that Jesus posed to his disciples, and they weren't sure. They said, some think you are Elijah. Some think you are a prophet. Some think you're John the Baptist. We're not sure. The Jewish leaders thought they knew the answer. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're a heretic. You're a demon-possessed man. Even Pilate was faced with this question at Jesus' trial. And his answer, shown by his actions, were that he thought Jesus was a convenient scapegoat. So this is a question that is before us today. Some want to ignore Jesus, saying that he's just a storybook figure. He's a fairy tale. He never existed. Others want to mythologize Jesus. They want to make him serve their ends, that the Jesus of their understanding neatly fits into everything that they want. Still others want to normalize Jesus. They want to make him just a good teacher, like every other good teacher who's walked the earth. But we must understand how Jesus viewed himself. 
And once again, he gives us this emphatic statement in verse 58. Truly, truly, now listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is a startling statement. In this statement, Jesus clearly claims superiority to Abraham, who is the greatest of all men for the Jews. And he claims that he's not a normal man because he is claiming to be before Abraham, who's been dead for 2,000 years. But he's not just a long-living man. It's not as if he's saying, well, I'm just kind of semi-mortal, I'm a a demigod, I'm a really, really, really long-lived descendant of Adam. Because he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Do you see that? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And look at the response immediately in verse 59. They pick up stones to throw at him to kill him. Now, what causes them to turn to violence now? You would have thought when Jesus said to them, you know, your father is the devil, they might have got angry and picked up stones to throw at them. You might have thought when Jesus said to them, you are going to die in your sins, that they wouldn't have got angry and they would have wanted to throw stones at him. But they don't. But here, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and they're ready to kill him on the spot. What's going on here? That's because this is the greatest claim that Jesus could ever make. He says, I am. I am is the name that the Lord God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. You may remember Moses came and he saw the bush that burned and wasn't consumed. And the Lord spoke to him out of the bush. And the Lord said, I'm going to send you to redeem my people out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses asks what I think is an excellent question. He says, they're going to ask me, who sent me? What's your name? And the response of the Lord God is, I am. Now, see, we think that that's just a common form of the verb to be. We use that all the time. I am, he is, they are. But what Jesus is saying is the same thing that what that God said to Moses, that is, I am, I am the self-existent, independent being. I'm dependent on no one. I have no beginning and I have no end. There is only one who can be the I am. In the Greek, I, I am. In the Hebrew, I am, that I am. There's no other other than me. Jesus is clearly claiming here to be God. He's saying he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. That he is the redeemer. That he is the the suffering servant of Isaiah. That he is the coming one of Malachi. That he is the answer to the law and its penalty. He is the I am. So we must respond to Jesus' claim. We're left with only two choices. We can acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. Or we can call Jesus a liar. Those are your only options. There is no middle ground left. Jesus did not intend 
for us to keep our distance from him. Jesus is either redeemer or he is destroyer. To know the Father, we must know Jesus. Because Jesus is truly and very God. There is no keeping a distance from Jesus. We must fall before him. We must worship him. We must love him. Do you hear the voice of Jesus today? Because he's speaking to you as clearly as if he were standing here in our midst. He's not hesitant. He's not unclear. Jesus is telling you that he is God himself. And most importantly for you today, Jesus is telling you that as God, he has eternal life. If you hear his word and believe it, you will never taste death. For the believer, death is not passing from life to death. It's passing from the land of the dying to the land of the living. That is our hope. Our hope is in Jesus, the great I Am. Let's pray.